Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. glad you could join me tonight. I have uh, a really cool lady here with me tonight, but first first, I want to thank, of course, Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He's a native storyteller. Please look for him on the internet. He has uh, a unique way of preserving history. He is a native storyteller. Native storytellers have preserved their history and traditions and philosophies and cosmology for more than generations, and it is a tradition that all of us should take a look at and consider greatly, a great way of preserving history that will be remembered because it was in a story as opposed to a flat-out, you know, so-and-so so did this and so-and-so did that, a great way to preserve these, the special things in your life, for sure. I have... Um, Judith Johnson on with me today, and her book is a guide to those seeking to consciously grow, serve, and thrive as elders. She's written a book called Making Peace with Death and Dying. It's a comprehensive, powerful, and vitally important research. Her book is, a uni is unique in its exploration of virtually every facet of death and dying in the contemporary word, world. Sorry. It paints a vivid picture of how the strong cultural denial of dying and death disempowers and disables us from preparing in so many important ways for one of life's most natural and important experiences. And it contains and it contrasts, sorry, it contrasts this with a rapidly emerging yet grounded in many of the world's spiritual tradition understanding of how to meet death with compassion, acceptance, trust, and even curiosity. A significant section of this book is devoted to reflections, exercises, and poignant stories which help you to explore your relationship to your mortality. These are in support of the book's invitation to befriend life's final passage and the smaller endings throughout life as opportunities for growth, compassion, and true embracing of each precious experience of this transitory mortal life. I want to add also that this is not only a book for 
individuals preparing for their own future demise and, and how to approach it and how to prepare for it. This is also a book that addresses the caregivers as well. And it's it's important for caregivers to understand how people are going through this process and how best to care for them and serve them in a loving, kind, and compassionate way. Uh, Judith's life and experiences add great richness to the wisdom she shares in all of her books. So please visit her website after the show, of course, at www.judithjohnson.com to learn more about her and her amazing journey. So it's an honor to welcome Judith to the show. Judith, thank you so much for sharing your time with me. Oh, my pleasure. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. Oh, I, you know, I, I was telling you earlier that, um, you know, a book on death and dying, ooh, I don't know. And yet, after I read the book, I thought, this is such a warm, loving, compassionate book, and it explains so much, and it does it in a way that it's not, for want of a more spectacular word, icky. It, 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 allow, it allows you to understand a lot of the things that are going on, you know, the processes that are going on, how people function and the changes that they they are involved in and it and also as i said earlier you you provide information for caregivers and you know being somebody who has been a caregiver for a great length of time um in the past it it was important to to look at the things that you suggested and say that was a good idea that was a good idea i did that i did that i did oh i could have done that too so that right you know, not not that I'm looking to be a caregiver again, but you know, chances are I might be, and you know, it will enhance the the kindness and the gentleness that that I share with someone else in in a whole new, different way and perspective. But if we go back to how death was at one time approached and and dealt with, you know, back in the olden days. I cringe when I say that, but in the olden days, and how it's addressed now, it explains why there are death taboos now. Um, you want to go into how we used to deal with death and, and, and how the taboos have come to replace these and, and spread fear, for sure. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I, if I may, I'd like to kind of address what the death taboo is. Um, uh-huh. because a lot of people don't really understand what, what I mean by that when they, they hear the term. And it, I guess the easiest way to think about it is, you know that image of the um, three monkeys, the see, no, hear, no, speak, no evil? That's yeah. kind of how we behave towards death. Um, we treat it like it's an elephant in the room, that we all have this silent agreement that we're just not going to deal with it, we're not going to talk about it, we're going to pretend it's not there. But it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's bizarre because every single moment of every single day, we, are, we think about the fact that we're living, but we don't realize that we're simultaneously dying. We're moving closer to our death and while we are living. So that's a very important piece. But the roots of the death taboo are so interesting because um, I, I talk about five, what I call five deep tap roots of the American death taboo and the culture of death. And one of them is the black 
plague. And of course, those you know, here we are living with the uh, with COVID, and we have a good reference point because the Black Plague, which was in 1348 to 1352, in Europe, half the population died. Now imagine that that. Half the people you know died of this disease that nobody knew how to cure it or anything. And um, prior to that, death had been kind of a normal thing and an intergenerational um, thing. We, people lived in communities. They lived with intergenerational families. Um, the, when somebody was sick or dying, they were cared for in the home. And then all of a sudden, half the population gets wiped, wiped away with this disease. And what people did was they they drew these little drawings that you know all the imagery that we see on the on the term death now about skulls and crossbones, the uh, uh, grim reaper. That imagery all comes out of that time period. And people made drawings of this, put it on their clothing, to try and mock death into thinking that I've already died. You can pass over me, okay. That was kind of how they dealt with it. Um, so that was psychologically one of the deepest roots of why we fear death. And um, let me just mention in relationship to that, <clears throat> since I, uh, this book has been quite a journey of about 11 years uh, to write. And during that time, I have been doing uh, image searches on the Internet all the, you know, consistently over the years to look at how do we um, image death. And consistently it has been those kinds of same images and some of the exact images from the Black Plague are still showing up today as how we perceive, visually perceive death. And you know how they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Very powerful, this imagery. Um, In recent years, it has started to change, but let's come to that later when we talk about how things are evolving. Um, in terms of, do you want me to talk about the other tap roots of, the, of where the death taboo comes from? Oh, sure. Okay. So another important one is uh, the birth of the, of the funeral industry, which a lot of people don't realize happened right after the Civil War. And that was like the first time in, in our country where all of a sudden our, our at that time it was all young men, were out fighting a war far from home, and people wanted to bring the dead bodies home, of their sons home. And that was what brought the popularity of embalming into our society so that we could transport their bodies home. At the same time, because there was so much death, you know, at that time, we had the funeral industry grow. And what used to be a family, uh, something that was carried done within the family structure, all of a sudden got moved outside the home. So instead of, like, if you, if you, I've had people talk to me about, oh, I have a house that, we, that was built in 1830, and it has these two parlor rooms in the front, and that's what it was. One of the parlor rooms was for laying out the dead um, in the home, and So it was even in our home design. But what happened is then all of a sudden the funeral industry burgeons and we we end up having people who we consider to be professionals handling the dead bodies. 
So we no longer have the contact with death that we used to have. And each layer of this um, made, made death more and more of an abstract experience for us. Um, another one was the institutionalization of medical care. If you think about that, it used to be, again, when people were sick, they were cared for at home. All of a sudden, we started moving people to, to medical facilities to care for them. So, again, we were not dealing with sickness. Same thing happened. We institutionalized the elderly into nursing homes. And each piece of that caused us to become less and less familiar with and, at, and comfortable around death and dying. Still with me? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Yeah, those they all added up to this 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 consciousness of of discomfort because it became less and less familiar. Okay. The the other thing that I wanted to mention in that, in terms of death and dying, is we also have a very um, a, a consciousness of very polarized thinking where we think about things as good or bad or right or wrong and all of that. And we have created a consciousness that says, you know, when a baby's born, it's like, oh, my God, isn't this wonderful? So-and-so had a, had a baby. But then when you hear that somebody's sick and dying, it's like, oh, my God, it's the worst thing that ever happened. But yet both are, exact, both are perfectly normal. They're equally normal stages of human life. And yet we have assigned value judgments about them as being one is good, one is bad. And that yeah, also well, you know, the the Chinese have a have a totally different at least the ancient Chinese did. When um a baby was born, they mourned because of all of the trials and tribulations the baby was going to have to face in life and when someone died they celebrated because they were done with the journey and they could get on to peace. Right. And which further emphasizes the fact that we have to understand that our society has kind of brainwashed us to view birth and death in a particular way, uh-huh. you know, and, and it's a tremendously um, strong influence on how we, how we feel about death or, or birth, you know, in, in, depending on our society. Yeah, I know that, that you know, like, like I said, when I was thinking about a book on death and dying, um, I, I, I stepped back. And it was like, well, wait a minute, this is, this is something that is natural. This is something that can be dealt with well. And you, you deal with it so beautifully in the book. It, it, it's, it's something that, that eases you into understanding that, that this is yet another, you prepare for school, you prepare for college, you prepare for working, <laughs> you prepare for retirement, and, and you should prepare as well for your, your exit. You know, you didn't have anything to do with the entrance, but you can... You can have something to do with the exit, and, and I have joking. I jokingly have said, and now I'm serious about it. Um, I am going to videotape my eulogy. I'm. I, I want to be the one that runs my funeral, and it seems to me that that instead of sadness and stuff like that, I want people to understand that it's it's my love and my humor that got me through however many years it is. 
and, you know, sort of like, well, welcome here since I'm here and you're there. I guess I'm dead. So, you know, this was my life. And and I I think that it's important to be able to, to manage that aspect. I mean, you don't have to put your last will and testament on tape, but you could. But but it's right. you know have, having having a better understanding of the fact that this is your this is your um, this is your departure whatever this is your what do they call it your exit interview this is your exit interview you're telling people this is what I did and this is where I'm going and or not and and it's just to me it's it it felt like this is a great way to exit so that people understand that there is excitement about a new life on the other side and not depression about the old life I'm leaving. Right. And you also brought up a very important point is is the idea of having a choice about how to how to do our exit. Um uh-huh. you know, one of the things that I when I was doing my research that I found very interesting was the influence of the baby boomer generation. <clears throat> and because um, that my, my first two books were about the wedding ceremony and very much dealt, deals with the fact that, that unless you're doing a wedding ceremony within the context of a particular religious tradition, you start with a blank sheet of paper. And you, ha- uh-huh. you, you can do, you know, there are very few laws that govern the content of the wedding ceremony, okay? Similarly, the same thing is true about a funeral or a memorial service. And we didn't even used to have memorial services until very recent years. That's another outgrowth from the baby boomers. Because when the baby boomers were getting married, they started saying, well, we want to get married out on a hilltop with flowers in our hair. And, you know, all of these different things <laughs> yeah. became creative about how to do ritual. And now baby boomers are having that same influence on the ritual, rituals around death. In fact, there are people who are saying, hey, wait a minute, why should you have this big gathering after I'm dead? I'm going to have a going away party, you know, and I want people to come and meet with me. I know people who have um, have had private goodbyes, you know, they kept inviting all their friends to come and visit them to say goodbye and to bring, you know, relationships to completion. Now, that might not be everyone's style, but isn't yeah. it wonderful? that for those for whom that is appropriate, that they have the freedom for that now. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, you know, I can remember at one point um, I had I, my son, who is now in his 50s, when he was young, when he was maybe eight years old, um, I I had to go to a funeral, and I was nervous a little bit about him seeing a dead person. And... Um, Went, got in the door and was talking to someone and noticed my son was gone. And he came up. He said, "Hey, you know what? There are a lot of dead people here." And <laughs> I, I said, "Really?" And you know, he he you know he told me there were two ladies and a man. And and I said, "Well, I hope you were kind and respectful." He said, "I went up and said goodbye to everyone. I didn't know anybody, but I said goodbye anyhow." And I thought, "All right, we can check this one off. I don't have to worry about this." But it, and it, he had, and somebody came up and, and she was crying and she said, "Your son came in and said goodbye to my husband. Did he know him?" Uh, and I said, 
I don't believe so. And she said, what a sweet thing to say goodbye. He said, she, he said that my son said, I know you're not here anymore and I know you're far away, but I want you to know that I think that you have beautiful people around you and I know you're going to be happy because that's what happens to nice people like you. Oh, what a sweet yeah. boy. Yeah. Well, he what still is, sweet. but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was kind of like he didn't know to be afraid, so he was very natural. And I think that something that that is important is our children naturally are not afraid. It's, That's right. It's what we they, it's what we say and how we say it to them, you know, like so-and-so is dead. Shh, don't talk about that. But, you know, if if they have never experienced any of the negative things about death, it's a very natural thing for them. And I think that's one thing parents have to understand, that, that um, death is natural and that their children should understand that it is something that naturally happens to everyone at, at, at the time that is right for that person. So... I mean, that was a big lesson for me because I was prepared to, you know, go into all sorts of stupid adult things with him about death. And he just did it all for himself, and it was brilliant. Yeah. There's a section in in my book that addresses um, how to um, help children understand about death and, you know, what age they can, what can they understand at what age and how to approach that. Um, and uh-huh. it's, it's fundamentally important to not feed them with fear, but to um, realize that they're curious little beings. They're, they just want to know. They want to understand, you know. And it's, uh, you know, things like saying that, um, you know, grandma has is with God or something like that is kind of a very abstract thing to a child. Uh-huh. And um, well, I, really go ahead. Also, also, you know, sometimes people have said, "Well, she's gone to sleep." And that right. can scare kids because, you know, if if she goes to sleep and she's in a box and getting put in the ground, maybe I better not sleep anymore. So, um okay. you know, par- parents, you know, in in trying to be kind and protect our children, sometimes we don't do them a favor. Right, and, there, and that was one of the things that was really important to me in this book, not only with children, but I, I feel that most people in our society operate at such a deficit in dealing with death that I wanted to, to help people understand that they have choices and that, it does, that they don't need to be so scared and that there are other ways to, to approach this. And one of the most important things is to understand that if you lead with your heart and and focus on loving the person, I mean, assuming you're dealing with somebody who is a loved one of yours, um, uh-huh. you know, I know for myself as a, um, you know, working in the hospital and, and all, that I have so often seen family members come in to their um, loved one's room you know somebody who everybody knows is dying and they'll come in and say oh your color looks good today or what have you done today you know as though we're going in the other direction and it is just such a heavy denial and so I wanted to help people understand 
how to be honest and real and authentic with each other. You know, it, it, it's hard for the person who's dying if they know that the person that they love is in denial. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it, 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 so if the person is saying your color looks good today, that translates to I can't talk to them about what's happening with me. You know, and, and one of the yeah. most beautiful things that we can do is create a safe place to talk about what's going on. You know, for the person to be able to ask them, is there anything you want to talk about about what's going on? You know, that's an honest, present moment question. That's not coming from fear. That's keeping the doors open because it's important to realize when somebody is dying, they are still the person that you know. It's just that they're in a different stage of their life than you're typically comfortable with. So, you know, to start seeing them like a dying person rather than my friend or my mother, that makes it really hard for the dying person. Yeah, and, you know, I I, I did mention that you talked a lot about caregivers, and I think that that, that, that is a very important aspect to your book because, Caregivers usually um, haven't really been through the death process. Well, they, of course they haven't been through the death process themselves. And, and so it, it, it's scary. It's, it's hard to know just how to, how to address things. But one of the most important things that, that you, you said in there that, that I was very, very impressed with was, you know, quite often people who are caregivers feel they're sacrificing and and it's it's important for them to know that whoever is passing over even if they're in a coma will feel the sacrifice and and if you're going to deal with someone who is going to pass over then then being of service and giving kindly of yourself is so much more important because people can feel the energetic that is coming off of you and Absolutely. and if it's like well you know, and and I think that's the the biggest thing. Um, when I've I've had the honor to be with two people that have passed over, and it was it was always important to me to make sure that they understood that I wanted to be with them because I felt like it was it was an honor to be there during that time frame. It, it was not mm-hmm. a job, and it was not a sacrifice. It was a pleasure, and. And that makes me sound weird, doesn't it? No, I I totally relate to that. And and, and so it's, go ahead, you had had your mom that you were so. No, what I wanted to say is as you were speaking, it it brought me back to a moment that was so beautiful to me. Um, When my stepfather died, my mother and I were by his side. And, you know, we were in an ER, and we had finally gotten them to turn the beeping machines off so Uh that we could just be quiet with him. You know, and it's little things like that. Ask to have the machines turned off, you know. Um, Create a sacred place for the death to happen. And I remember that I had my hand on his chest when he took his last breath. And it was the most, it, it was just a, an amazing experience to me that I felt life leave his body, mm-hmm. you know? 
Um, that to me was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary it moment. And, and I, I it's wanted a, to say it's a gift too. Oh, I mean, beautiful. You can't. I mean, that's that's something that you you know you hope people don't have to experience, but if they do, it is so, it's such a magical gift that the person dying saved that time for you and let you experience it. And and also, it's um, on that note. Some people, like I remember um, at first that after my mother died, um, and to put it in context, I had been. Her, I had been her caregiver for, for the last nine years of her life. We shared a home. And then the last six months were very intensive medical um, care. And she, she died. Um, I was asleep upstairs when she died. She was with, a, with one, of the, one of the people that we had hired as caregivers. And that was something, a distinction I wanted to talk about in a minute is, is there are family caregivers and there are professional hired caregivers and there's some a lot of interesting things about that but what i wanted to say is that a lot of people do choose to die when the person who is closest to them they might choose to die when that person walks out of the room to spare them if yes. they don't think that can handle it and a lot of people don't realize that and they'll feel like oh my god you know a normal reaction is to feel like, oh, I failed her. I wasn't with her when she died. But you know what? That was her choice. And it's important well, it's, to recognize. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, yes, you're absolutely right. And I, um, I was with my late husband when he passed away, and I, I really didn't want to see him go. There was, I just didn't want to. I was there sitting in the room with him. He was in a coma. And it was the weirdest thing. I heard a voice say to me, go home now. And normally I would say, who the hell are you or what's going on? I, I got up, I went to the nurse's station and said, I have to go home, I have to feed the animals and walk the dog and I'll be right back. And by the time I got home, the nurse called and said, your husband has passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely they do. They, if they really feel that it's going to be too difficult for you, they will hold. They will wait yeah. until you're not there. There's an amazing kindness. Right. And similarly, I've also known cases where people have held on until a particular person got to say goodbye. You know, and uh-huh. people, you know, this is not a rational thing. That, and a lot of people will think, well, that sounds crazy. I mean, how, do you, how can you tell me that somebody decides when they're going to die? But there is an element of that choice that is present. I've seen it so many times. And yeah. um, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating in terms of who is with them when they die and who I, and, is not. And, yeah, and I think there is the power to do that. Um, I've, I've heard stories very similar to that, that people have waited for planes to land and come to the hospital before they pass over. It's 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 an amazing experience, and you know because it is our last um, hurrah here, so to speak, on the earth plane. I think that there is a, a sense that we do have some control over, you know, how and when, and, and there is not somebody tapping their foot waiting for us to, you know, it, it, it's more waiting for someone to arrive to say goodbye rather than, oh, I want to tell somebody where the key to the 
Dropbox is or whatever, you know. So exactly. Which I had. A, you know, I had another. I had another situation where a neighbor of mine um, died a few years ago, and another woman who was a neighbor and I had both been at a, with her at a critical point when she had been diagnosed with cancer, and her daughter came. And the two of us were there when the daughter was told, okay? And Mm -hmm. it was a great comfort to the daughter. And it was a very bizarre thing. On the day my friend died, it was was almost like God rearranged the assortment of people because the person who had been at her bedside and you would have sworn would be there with her when she died, he had been there like for three nights in a row at her bedside. I came in and I said, David, go take a break. Please, go take a break. Walk around the block. And I came in there and then all of a sudden the other neighbor came and then she di- the daughter came in the room and she died. Wow. It was, it was like it was orchestrated somehow beyond our comprehension. It was orchestrated. Well, I think that it's important for for everybody to understand. I mean, you know, there are there are accidental deaths and there are deaths that you know happen when there's no pl- there's no forewarning. But but as far as being a caregiver, some people really have that ability to do that, and some people don't. But for the people that don't have the ability, there are people that you can hire that will be there and be gentle and kind and understanding with with whoever is is passing over. Um, you, you know, and there are other to support also. Yeah. Um, you know, because I, I in my family, um, there were three children. Um, when my mother was dying, there were three of us. My mother and I shared a home, so I was like the natural one to be there because my uh-huh. siblings lived, you know, hours, four or five hours away. Um, my brother would drive five hours every weekend or every other weekend to come and be with us, but he couldn't stand to see my mother dying. And he yeah. would be in the, he would, he would be filling the bird feeders. Oh, I'll go to the store and get some lunch, you know, and he would be doing things like that to be helpful, but he really couldn't bear to be at her bedside. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember feeling angry at him at the time because I so desperately needed relief, but he couldn't do it. And we yeah. talked about it about a year later and made peace with each other about it. And he, and he, he said, I, I, am, I, I told him I was so angry at him because he didn't, wasn't there for me. And he, he said, I've, I've been so ashamed of myself. I, I just couldn't do it. And yeah. it was so sincere, and I and, and just what you said, he was not able to, but he did everything that he could. Yeah, and that was important. And he handled all of the financials and you know the the insurance the filings and all of that kind of stuff. He handled the paperwork for me, so I could be hands on. You know, but as yeah, you I mentioned, think... go ahead. No, no, no. I I think that that some people are just not, um, and it's not a bad thing because, you know, if, if everybody were kind and compassionate, the, the rooms of people dying would be so crowded it would be awful. <laughs> but, but, you know, and somebody has to take the trash yeah. out. 
Yeah, it doesn't mean they don't care. It means some people are capable of that level of care and some aren't, as you said. Yeah. And we have to learn to have compassion for each other, that we are all doing the best we can. And, and you know, I also, it, with 2020 hindsight, I mean, my life was consumed by caring for my mother. And uh-huh. there were times when that was really hard for me to set aside other aspects of my life. But with 2020 hindsight, I'm the one who was most blessed because I had that time with her. And there was a level of intimacy that my mother and I achieved with each other that was deeper than I've ever had with another human being. And, um, you know, all pretense gets put aside. When you, you know, we, we took that journey together, I as the caregiver and she as the dying person. And the last words we said to each other Nine days before she died, she, she looked at me with great intention and she said, I love you. And I oh, said, my. I love you. She closed her eyes and never opened them again for nine days since she died. Wow. But we got to that. We got to, you know, say what needed to well, be said. I had the same sort of situation as you did uh, with my mom. And after she had passed my son and his wife and my sister and her husband and I went out to dinner um, because we were all exhausted and my son said, okay, we're going to have a drink before dinner and we're going to put a drink in the center for Grandma. And I said, fine, uh-huh. Grandma drank Grandma drank Manhattans. And at one point he picked it up and he said, everybody has to take a sip and tell a funny story about Grandma. Well, it went around once and then it ran around, went around twice and and it kept going around, and people were dropping out. And because I had been with her the most, I had the most funny stories. Mm. I don't remember the end of dinner because <laughs> I drank more of that Manhattan than everybody else did. But I, I am told I was hysterical. So um, it's it's you know it, there there's so much love and around somebody dying that um, and and it's celebration there's for them. Yeah, there can be, and and yeah. and I and I want to say that in life, I mean, you know, when when you reflect on your life, it is the love that you really, the real authentic loving that you share with any other human being, are the prizes that you have in your life. They're the greatest treasures. And oh yeah. As far as it sounds, when somebody is dying, you have such an enormous opportunity to experience tremendous love and we don't Uh realize that but we have to set aside our fear and go and participate and be vulnerable and and yes you can be scared and you're there anyway you know there were hysterically funny moments that we went through (laughs) you know i can believe it there were hard times but you know, that's life. It's kind of like an, um, a, a, a things kind of get set up in terms of everything, so much intensity all at once. But um, you really get to um, experience such a range of, of human behavior um, uh-huh. in terms of, you know, the, care, the, the people in the hospital. And you start to see such a difference 
and realize how important loving kindness is and that when you have somebody like a doctor or a nurse or somebody who is personable and shows they're caring for you and your loved one, oh, my God, it's wonderful. Yeah, I think one thing... One thing that you said, which I thought was very interesting, too, that I hadn't thought of, that that doctors often don't like to say, you know, you're dying. They right. they would would rather say, you know, end of what? How do how do they put it? Um, they they basically have another term for it, something like um, keeping uh, keeping them pain free and stuff like that, as opposed to saying, you know, they they're not. I, when when well, my mom even was in intensive care, I said to the doctors, "Should I call family? Should I? Should you be preparing me for something?" And they said, "No, no, she's going to be fine. Back in her room, yada yada." And, and that night she died. And yeah. it would have been kinder to say to me, "She's going to cross over. We don't know how long it's going to take, but she is dying." I mean, doctors don't say that, and I think. You get angry, you know. There's no, they say there's nothing more we can do, but they don't say think of palliative care, think of hospice, think of nursing home. They don't do that, and I think that that is a detriment to the family because the family has to be briefed somehow, and if they're not, then they're they're caught, you know, cold turkey, so to speak. But that but it's important to understand that that behavior on part of doctors is part of the death taboo because until recent, until the last 50 years, we didn't have any, I mean, hospice just started in Europe 50 years ago, okay? But if uh-huh. you understand that medical, uh, medical education to become a doctor is about preserving life. Now, preserving life has no room for death. In the, con- in the consciousness that is oriented to preserving life, death is failure. If my patient dies, I failed. Uh-huh. That's what a lot of doctors go through. And it's very traumatic for them to be, to be faced with helplessness to do anything. And medical schools have only in the recent years started teaching palliative palliative care and teaching doctors how to do the transition with patients from healing to dying, to accepting that transition point where there is nothing further to be done medically. Um, I don't know if you remember in the book I shared the story from a sanatology textbook. And this is in a contemporary hospital that where they forbid the use of the word death on patient floors. And if you were a nurse and I I was a nurse and you wanted to let me know that a particular patient had died, what you would say to me, they had a code, which is, guess who won't be shopping at Walmart anymore? What a horrible thing. That, That the staff could not even utter the word death. And it's just like when you began and said, when I first heard about your book about death and dying, I was kind of like, ooh, that's yeah. how we are. That is the death taboo and how it works. And it's hitting, it's, it's for us as regular people, it's, it's in the medical field. We are all learning to deal with it in a different way um, and to move away from the fear 
And for doctors, the idea of saying, I think it's time to consider hospice care, for many of the doctors, it still is perceived as a personal failure. Very important to recognize. Yeah, and and you do. I I know that uh, my mom had a doctor, a dermatologist, who visited her in the hospital, and and he said, well, she should go home. She can go home, and she couldn't come home. I couldn't. You know, I she was I she couldn't come home, and I was so angry at him because he was saying to her, "Oh, of course, Dorothy, you can go home." Well, no, she couldn't. <laughs> and, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's like I I don't think doctors in many cases want to even recognize that that is the outcome. Um, I have a friend whose whose father is is terminally ill, and the doctors he they keep. The doctors keep sending them to different people for different things, and yet the the father is terminally ill, and they keep right. you know, suggesting other tests and other you know trials. And I feel sorry for my friend who's taking his eighty eight year old father all over the place. And and you know, I said, you know, have they told you that this is going to be a cure? And they said, no, it's just going to buy him more time. And I said, isn't his time better spent in other ways? You know, I mean, it's. Uh, yeah, yeah, it they jerk us around, and I don't think they really mean to. I just think it's what they're taught, and that's what they have to do. They don't know what else to do. When yeah. you are trained to serve life, and you live in a time where medical care has so many, you know, they have so many tools in their in their medical bag, uh-huh. <clears throat> so many tests to be done, so many things, you know, treatments, but. there reaches a point um, where there is a question about is the the treatment worse than the disease, you know? Yeah. There's something started, I don't remember the man's name, he started something called the slow medicine movement. And it's, it's recognizing exactly this issue. And it is the idea of, of acknowledging that there is a decision to be made that perhaps less is better. Perhaps the fact that there is a treatment might not mean that we should take the treatment. If you're terminally ill and there is yet another kind of chemotherapy that you could have, but you're likely to be, you know, in the bathroom going from both ends constantly and getting further debilitated to go through the treatment, and there's very low probability that it's going to do, I mean, do anything but End your life maybe a month or two that's to be considered about whether or not to do that um, and, and this is why people need to think more about end of life and when um, one of the things that I talk about in the book also is what is it, what do we mean when we talk about end of life planning and there's mm-hmm. really three, three things that need to be tended to um, one is end of life medical care one is about having a will or a trust, you know, what to do with my stuff and my money. And the third uh-huh. is what kind of service do I want once I, when I've died, you know, what kind of ritual. And having the, the, the number one reason why we, it is important to do this is so that you have a voice about yourself. It's like when you were saying before, I'm writing my, I'm taping my own eulogy. Go for it. You know, that's you yeah. saying this is the choice of what I want 
for my funeral. And it's meaningful to you. And the reason to do any of this of planning, there are two big reasons, three big reasons. One, so that you have a voice, so that you get to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want, this is what matters to me, okay? So uh-huh. that's the number one. Number two is it is the greatest act of love for your loved ones, for them to know what matters to you, what you want, because there's nothing worse than being like a caregiver. I remember one night, um, part of what ha- what happened with my mother, and I, let me just reference this, is um, what started the end of her, you know, the, where we knew she was in the end of her life, was um, she fell backwards down a flight of stairs and cracked her head open and ended up in the, in the hospital and, you know, her brain was swelling and she was in the emergency and the uh, intensive care unit. And there was a moment where the doctors told me that she had a 50-50 chance of making it through the night. Uh-huh. And did, did, we, did I want them to put a feeding tube in her to try and give her body more nourishment to make, to, that might help her make it? And I remember going into her room and asking her what she wanted to do. Did she want the feeding tube or not? And unfortunately, because of her head injury, um, one of the side effects of a head injury is sometimes the person has no affect. In other words, there's no emotional content, if you will, to their communication. And she basically looked me dead in the eye and she said, I don't care one way or the other. And I ended up having to make that decision. Um, well, they, they've got they've got you know advanced care directions, right? That they can, if when they're yeah. when they're healthy, right. that they can you know just so that family members don't have to guess it, you know whether they want exactly. to be shot out of a firework or buried underground or turned into a diamond after they're dead or anything like that too. So right. so feeding yeah feeding tubes and all of that are definitely brought up with um, advanced care directives. Yes. yes, but at the time when my mother died, they were still not really actively being done. And this uh-huh. is one of the reasons that I wrote this book was to explain to people how important it is. If you are over the age of 18, okay, it is important. Wait. It's important. It's a, i got to stop you there. I, you got to repeat it because most people you know, think about this in their 50s or whatever. And it's yeah. it's like after the age of 18, you can make these decisions for yourself and adjust them as you get older. But pay exactly. attention you so that... But, but we all, you know, you don't have to be old to die. That is a critically important thing to understand. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Uh, about about one-third of us die before the age of 65. And, you know, there are people who die who are 8 years old or 22 years old. This happens. Uh-huh. If you want to have input about what happens to you in terms of end, about medical care and what happens to your stuff and what happens in terms of a ritual, then you need to file these documents. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about advanced health care planning. Um, okay. There is... There's a um, basically what you have to do is decide what you want done and what you don't want done. Okay, 
There's wonderful resources online about that explain to you things like what about a feeding tube or what about, you know, withholding nourishment? Like people worry. People who don't know about these things worry about things like, well, she's not eating and, and she needs her nourishment. When somebody is actually dying, they need to uh-huh. be able to know. Okay? Um, yeah. So there are so many things to understand. Um, it's important to understand and educate yourself about the considerations that need to be made about medical care at the end of life. So, for example, my dear friend Roy was, um, he was dying. He was at home. They had wonderful family and hired caregivers. He had a DNR, do not resuscitate order, over his bed. You know, uh-huh. he had decided, let me, if something happens, let me die. Don't, you know, don't call the EMTs. Don't have them take me to the hospital. I don't ever want to go back there again. All right? Uh Then one day, one of the caregivers was with him, and he started to aspirate, and she called 911. Now, what happens is when you call 911, the job of the the, the EMTs is is to stabilize the patient for transport to the hospital. That is their job. If the phone call is made and they get to the house and there's a do not resuscitate order over the bed, that phone call supersedes the the DNR over the bed. Oh, really? Yes, it does, in most states, because it was a a more current um, decision. Uh And so it's very, very important for in a situation like that that you educate your caregivers, all of them, because what happens is people get scared. It's like, oh, my God, let me call 911. Well, wait a minute. If there's a do not resuscitate order, that means don't call 911. That's what it means. Okay? Wow. And people don't understand that. Is that means don't call. Let me go. Let me die. That's yeah. my choice. And people know, don't know yeah. that. When uh, and these, my brother and yeah, my brother-in-law was in hospice, and my sister, mm-hmm. who who is a nurse practitioner, was sitting in his room, getting very upset because he wasn't eating, and trying to urge him to eat and bring things in. And finally, a nurse took her aside and said, "He's dying. He doesn't have to eat yeah. anymore." And you know, it's it's something that you have to understand that that there is there's a process. There's a process of letting go of this reality and and being able to merge with another. And and you know, you don't need the food. You don't need the water. You need peace and and permission in many cases to go. Right. And 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 it's also important to know because people worry. Well, there he's not eating. He's going to be. It's, it's, He's going to be in a lot of pain because of hunger. No. Uh-huh. When you are dying, withholding, not eating food is the body processes shutting down, and that is not painful for the, for the patient. It is not a source of pain. You might feel, feel hunger pain, you know, if you don't eat in, over a certain period of time when you're thriving as, an, as, a, as a person, but in the uh-huh. dying process, What's important to recognize is that the person is leaving their body. 
the body is dropping. Whether you believe that there is anything that lives on beyond the physical, mm-hmm. the body, the person is, the life is leaving the body. And just the way we, it is um, a journey for us to come into this world through the birth canal and all of that to be birthed into the world, there is a letting uh-huh. go also on the other end when we leave our bodies. And, for example, um, I know as, as a chaplain in the hospital, I very often would, re- would remind people that, um, you know, if your person, if your dying loved one is um, becoming less responsive to follow their cue don't be a chatterbox and say oh let me tell you about this or I want to you know be quiet follow their lead if they're going into greater that is what they need because they are drifting in and out it's almost like practice runs out of the body you know it's it's Uh like 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 practice runs and and also um, that in the process of withdrawing they are also withdrawing from involvement with us no matter how much they love us or we love them or you know whatever they have to let go not only of their physical body but of their emotional connections to us and it's very important for us to honor that and to let them go. Um, I remember yeah. when my sister-in-law was just a basket case when her father was dying and she was grabbing hold of him and saying, you can't die, Daddy, I need you. And this was a grown woman. Uh-huh. You know, and that does not serve the person who's dying. You know, we need to honor the fact that death is normal and it needs to be respected. And the greatest thing we can do is treat the death space as a sacred place. You know, another thing is, as a chaplain that I have, was always advising families is if they were having family squabbles, you know, over having differences of opinions of what to do and all, I would always take them out in the hall and explain to them, you need to do this outside of the of hearing of this person you're creating yeah, and even you in, know, even in a, even in a coma there is that level of awareness and hearing and hearing um is hearing is the last uh-huh. sense to and it's important that even when somebody is apparently in a coma tell them how much you love them they will hear you they just may not respond no, and, and also it's re- important it's important to say it's okay to go. Exactly. Exactly. So important to say that. I and and I know with my mother, my mother was worried about me. And I remember how important it was to say to her, and this was while she was in a coma, I said, I want you to know I am fine and I'm going to be fine and you're allowed it's you're you're allowed to go and do what you need to do for yourself now. I have no idea what that is, but, you know, but um, I will be fine, and I don't want you worrying about me. I had a funny, well, I, now this is a, a little off, okay. off the here, but I have a funny little story. Um, uh, uh, just shortly after my mother's death, um, I went um, 
in, I went to a, actually a training. Uh, I went on a retreat, and um, I had a house sitter staying with my two cats. And when I when she came and picked me up at the train, she said, "Oh, I met your mother." And I said, "What do you mean you met my mother?" I said, "My mother died, you know, two weeks ago." And she said, well, I saw, you know, those pictures that you showed me of your mother at the bottom of the stairs. I recognized her. She said, when I was sleeping one night in your room, all of a sudden I was startled awake. And there was this light and there was this woman standing in the doorway wearing this rainbow colored, there was like rainbow light around her, right? But I recognized her. It was your mother, okay? Well, I was so free because I was like, I was away. I had been with her for nine years. She dies. <laughs> and she comes and visits this girl who's my, my house sitter. But I have heard nothing from her myself, right? And it was oh, so my. funny. Because you just never know what's going to happen. And whether or not these things seem real to people or not, we all have... We we have different levels of reality about this, and that's okay. Well, I I think also you have a you have a great deal of information about things that we want to do prior to actually that big step. You know, without being mm-hmm. diagnosed, you know, you, you, there, there's a checklist. There's almost there is a checklist. Of, yeah. of things that that you want to take care of, that you want to, you know, that you want to mend fences, that you want, you know, it's at a certain age, it's a good idea to mend fences. It's a good idea to uh, reconnect where it's appropriate and let go of where it's not. And and I think that that's an important thing for p- people to realize that, you know, you know, ninety years from now when I decide to cross over, um, you know, I want I want to have tied up my loose ends and you do it when you're when you're okay and health as far as that goes to to make these resolutions and 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 then there of course you know the bucket list where's my bucket list you know what are the things i want to do you can start on your bucket list when you're 21 as far as that goes it's just a bigger bucket that's all and and i i also like to reframe the idea of a bucket list to um Two things to recognize: life is precious. We don't uh-huh. know how much time we have, but we have the opportunity to define the quality of our lives. We have the opportunity to um, decide what really matters to me, and to really raise the level of consciousness from which we live our lives. Um, I know for myself, I have learned in life that service is the highest level of consciousness that I can function in. And so mm-hmm. to write a book that's going to help other people face their death, man, I got I got to do that. That was something that was important for me to do. You know, you have to decide what really matters to you. Um, and, and I want to give the aside that this book was the fulfillment of a deathbed promise I made to my mother. And... I couldn't not do it, you know? Oh, um, yeah. It, it took me 11 years, and but I did it. And so this is a huge celebration for me to be talking about 
my book is out there in the world now. Um, but she made me promise. She took, she literally grabbed hold of my wrist when she was, you know, two weeks before her death. She looked in my eyes and she said, I want you to promise me that you will write about what we have learned about dying in this society, in a world that doesn't have, that's not comfortable with death. I want you to write about it and help other people so they can do it better. And um, I'm oh, so yeah. grateful for that. But no, I, um, I, I think that that's a wonderful thing that, that, that she shared because uh, from from your stories in the book about her, she was a remarkable lady. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I would have loved to have met her, um, especially with the nickname she got. I know. Shall I, shall I say how she got her nickname? Yeah, go ahead. So, my, um, my mother's nickname, we called her Cake. Her her birth name was Grace, um, mm-hmm. but we called her as in Birthday Cake. And um, it's sourced from the fact that at, once in a really blue moon, my mother would make a cake. And my sister and I um, genetically took after my father in that, you know, we had to cross the street when approaching a bakery because we would gain weight. My brother, my my brother who had naturally blonde hair, long eyelashes, and was thin as a rail, okay, I mean, my mother would feed him milkshakes with ice cream in them to keep weight on his bones. And... So whenever she had a cake, did a cake, she would always cut it with an un. She she she'd give my father a normal restaurant slice. My brother would get a wedge, and she would wistfully look at me and my sister and cut like this paper thin little piece of cake for each of us. And she kept cutting with an uneven edge and straightening the edge of each piece. So there's all this extra cake debris on the cake platter. And uh-huh. quite coincidentally, on those nights, she would excuse my sister and myself from dish duty. And my mother would do the dishes. And all of that debris on the cake platter would disappear, and my mother would end up eating cottage cheese to diet the next day. You know? <laughs> so my brother had said, said to her, we should call you cake eater. And it just stuck. We just all called her cake from then on. That was so fun. cute. I know yeah. uh, with my mom, my my mom was, um, she never asked me to write a book, but I threatened to, and I said, I'm going to write a book about all of the strange stuff that happens when you're living with somebody who is going into, well, she had uh, many strokes. So I, I didn't mm-hmm. say dementia because I didn't know that's what it was, but I said, I'm going to write a book called When the Marbles Start to Roll. And every now and then, um, I would I would give my mother five or six marbles, and she'd say, "What's this?" And I'd say, "They were rolling across the floor." I just figured I'd pick them up and you could put them back in. And when she died, there was this huge sack of marbles <laughs> that I found in her desk. She kept every one of them, and and it was kind of like, you know, I, I think that the most important thing when dealing with all of this is to have a, a kind, loving sense of humor. Absolutely. And, because and that also brings... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. 
Well, I want you to finish what you were saying. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that it, it's it's what it's what fuels the compassion and makes it so yeah. easy to take care of somebody going through something like this. It does, and and I wanted to bring up that. You know, we're talking about this in terms of caregiving around the time of death, but it's important to recognize that it's, you know, for most of us, um, here's an interesting fact. Only 10% of us will die suddenly. 90% Uh will have a gradual decline with, you know, our health will start failing and things, you know, start going wrong, but most of us will have a good long time you know, moving down the down down the line there, and which means a couple of things. One is that we have the time to thoughtfully prepare for the end of life, but it also uh-huh. means that we are going to increasingly need support from other people. And I know, having shared um, the last nine years with my mother, um, she had. A few things were declining. It's like she had macular degeneration. And so over time, I became her eye, okay? She also had a tremendous hearing loss. And within the – I got got to recognize the life cycle of hearing aid batteries because when she changed the batteries, she would hear beautifully. And then as the batteries were running out, her hearing would be getting less and less. Uh-huh. And there's a story in the book that I'm very fond of. It was such a fond moment where um, probably three months before she died, we were we were having a really deep conversation. And, and I knew that um, my parents had a, you know, were divorced, and she held a lot of bitterness towards my father. And he was sharing with me, that she had finally, um, she had finally made peace and let go of her bitterness towards him. She said, "You know, I've been working on this for most of my life, and I have finally, I'm finally free of that. I don't hold any animosity towards him in my heart anymore." And I turned to her and I, I said, "Cake, that is so totally cool." <laughs> and she turned to me and she said. You said God is French toast? <laughs> and I looked at her stunned, number one. Why would you think I would say such a thing? But what it brought me to was to recognize how she struggled with her hearing. That she very often didn't hear exactly what I said. And when the hearing aid batteries were on the decline, it was, it was a lot of work to even engage in a conversation over time with hearing loss. And so when you're dealing with an elderly person, try, you know, a lot of people when they hear that somebody has a hearing loss, they start yelling at them, thinking that by raising the volume they can hear them, but it, they treat them like they're stupid when, in fact, yeah. they just have a loss. You know, and it's... Yeah. I I gained such compassion in that one moment with her, realizing what a struggle that must be. Yeah, what it's, a struggle. It's, it's got, and you know what? I um, th- there was a period of time where um, <clears throat> I had a car accident and my eyes really weren't functioning well, 
And you learn how to pass. Instead of, you know, going to a yeah. restaurant and looking at a menu, you say, what do you recommend? What are the specials? And, you know, there are there are very subtle ways that you don't want to admit that you can't do something. So so you, you, you kind of scrooge your way around them so that people don't know that you're handicapped. People don't know that you have a difficulty. You just... Um, and and sometimes it, it's going to be something that gets worse and worse and worse, and so you, you hold on as long as you can. And nobody nobody really wants to admit that something is not a hundred percent, but um, you know eventually you do. But it's it's that's a long journey, and that's a hard one to face for people who are with with Parkinson's and with a lot of these other um, Alzheimer's and dementia. It, it's a hard thing for for a caregiver to be supportive of that without overreacting. I know um, my mother stopped smoking when she was 65. She had a heart attack, and she'd been smoking since she was 20. And at 80, uh, when she was she was definitely um, going downhill, we were sitting watching TV one night, and she said to me you know where I put my cigarettes? And mm. it caught me so, it, it just it, it just slammed me in a, in a strange way. And I said, did you hear what you just said? And she said, yeah, I asked you if you know, saw where I put my cigarettes. And then I realized what it was. And I said, no, I don't know, but they'll turn up. And she said, okay. But yeah. You know, you 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 have to if you you tr- you have to try. It's not always successful, but you have to try to to be in their world, not yours. And you you're, you have to try to not bring them back into yours because they can't function in yours. So you have to be where they are. Right. And, and uh, you know, again, the, the aging process, a um, few things I want to say. One is there's a wonderful um, chart uh, list in, in my book about what is an, what are the normal things that decline with age, both in physically and mentally and emotionally. And it's a stunning list of what's yeah, normal. You know, it's a stunning list of what is normal. Um, and, you know, it's not like we stay fully functional and then we die. No, we decline, we decline, we decline. And uh-huh. um, at, for, in, for people, you know, we keep using the term caregivers, but family members, people who are... You know, some people are not very kind. You might be a family member and not be a really nice person, or you might be a family member and be a really empathic, lovely, kind person. But, Uh you know, those family dynamics still keep going on, and people can be very unkind. And one of the things that I observed with my mother was um, that, you know, what you were saying, how you fake it sometimes when you're dealing with some aspect of you that's declining. And there is this issue of autonomy. When we, you know, we are so individualistic in this society, and and especially now when, you know, our families are dispersed all over the place and we're all very singular. And when you start having to face the need for some support and some help, you know, it's like with my mother, um, I, you know, I ended up having to read to her because she couldn't read. Um, we bought a giant TV for her 
so, and and by the time we got the thing up on the wall, she could sometimes tell if it was a male or female, but she couldn't tell which character it was. Uh-huh. You know, her her eyesight went dramatically. Her hearing went. And when somebody would call, she would get on the phone and say hello and fake her way and then hand me the phone telling the person, Jude will catch me up. You tell her and she'll let me know. Yeah. You know, but it was hard for her because I ended up having to drive her everywhere. I was her eyes. I was her ears. I was her, you know, I had to do everything, so many things for her. And everything that I had to do was because she couldn't do it herself anymore. And it's important to be respectful of the person. Um, there's a, a friend of mine had a situation in the family where um, her husband had Parkinson's and they were at her at his son's house for a family gathering. And the son all of a sudden is taking his father upstairs and calls down to the guest, I'll be back in a minute. My father just peed in his pants and I have to take care of it. You know, how cruel can you be? How cruel? And we need to hold ourselves accountable and and take advantage of these opportunities. You know, the golden rule about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, Put yourself in those in that person's shoes. Think about what it must feel like to have to be dependent on others like that. It's not easy. It's not an well, easy hap- thing. Uh, and- happily, there, especially in hospice and nursing homes, there are very kind, com- compassionate people that that really do have that ability to be kind and 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 not judge and not criticize and and to allow you to go through whatever process you need to go through. And and let me say that this is another reason I am, you know, I I I'm such an advocate of of hospice care. And unfortunately, most people who need hospice care don't get it until the last few days of their lives. And uh-huh. essentially the way it's important to know that if you have, if a person has, if the doc, I think you need two doctors to affirm that the person has a, a life, ex, a probable life expectancy of six months or less, they qualify for hospice care. Now, hospice care is palliative care. In other words, you are no longer treating, quote, the cause of illness. Um, you know, you're managing symptoms, but you're not trying to cure a disease. You right. are doing comfort care for the person. Now, when when we had hospice care come in for my mother, she had it for about three months, I think. I felt like we had been abducted by angels. And it wasn't just care for her. They, it was care for me. I mean, uh-huh. what a concept, care for the caregiver. It was wonderful. And I... And while I had been doing the best I could, working with total ignorance, I had never been in a situation like that before. I had just my loving heart to lead me, you know, and my stubbornness that I wanted the best for my mother. But all of a sudden, I had skilled people who were calm and competent and they knew what to do, and I could pick up the phone 24 hours a day 
There was always somebody in hospice I could call, and they would be kind and supportive on the other end of the phone and tell me what to do. And if I needed them to, they would get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and come to the house. Yeah. I know. uh, Amazing. My my late husband was in hospice in the hospital, and yeah. um, on on the floor, um, it was like a whole other world. They had yeah. showers for the caregivers. They had a, a restroom. They had beds for the caregivers if they wanted to draw curtains and take a nap. They they yeah. they had food there for the caregiver. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It was like I should have done this long ago. Well, I couldn't, but. He was only there for three or four days. But Tiffany lampshades in the bedrooms, they brought in music for him. They brought in, yeah. I mean, it was, it was. yes, you're right. It's, it's like being abducted by angels because suddenly somebody is there to support you. Somebody is there to, to help you help them. And, you know, they were, they, they were so kind. They were so caring that, that I, you know, I, I took short naps because I trusted that, if anything happened, I'd be called immediately. It was it was really uh, it was it was so loving and kind. It felt like it was at home, you know, and that's what they right. made it feel like. And to understand that we now finally, as a society, have um, care for the dying through hospice, and to understand what we were talking about before about how doctors are ill at ease with death because their uh-huh. job is is about life. So now we have the we, we we have we have some something we have professional care for where the doctors can do no more. And that's good for the doctors now to get adapted to that as well that they are doing the right thing to pass you on to hospice. That to say okay, we're done with our part of the, of the journey of, of restoring health. Now it's time to give this person comfort as they go out of this world. And how lucky are we that we have those services now? Oh, absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. And, you know, you're, and the, you're, the, the, you're, the music therapy, let me oh, yeah. say, uh, I was... I was so amazed and not all hospices have music therapy but some of them do and Uh we had a woman who would come with her little harp or a little piano and she would ask my mother about she would get in conversation with my mother about my mother's favorite songs and I'll tell you when she would play oh Johnny boy I mean my mother was an Irish Catholic and when she would play oh Johnny boy for my mother it was. It allowed my mother to, to release so much sad. You know, the the the, the sadness of of, the, of of that was held still in her. She could release. And then there were there were songs that just made her give her a pep and her step on her way out. You know, uh-huh. um, but it was music is such an amazing therapy. It's so helpful, um, and it's so comforting to the patient. So, so comforting. Absolutely. And, and you don't have to talk. You just have to share the experience, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sometimes sometimes there aren't words, and sometimes it's it's good that there aren't words, that you can just 
share share that piece and that time with them and hold their hand or stroke their brow or or whatever it's 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 they feel the energy coming from you and and I think the the one thing that I was always very careful about you know with my mom and and then with my late husband was that anybody who came in you know had to come in in a loving manner it it wasn't that they were going to you know try to cheer them up or whatever they were my mother and he were in a different place they were letting go and so talking softly and talking about things that that you know were reminders and and pleasant experiences i mean it was important and you know i i haven't gotten feedback from either my mother or my late husband but i think it was a really good experience <laughs> yeah yeah. So yeah, and no, no, nobody's rattled a chain and said, "How could you?" So I think it was okay. Right, right. Um, but the idea of, of also being being peaceful and all, and that you don't have to talk. Some people talk so nervously to fill the air with sound because they're nervous. And uh-huh. you're right. And just to just touch the person's hand or just to sit quietly. Um, I had many occasions as a chaplain in the hospital where, you know, I would not have known the patient, and sometimes they were conscious, sometimes they weren't. And there were many, many times that I would sit for long stretches of time and simply pray for the person, quiet, you know, silently pray for the person, uh-huh. or just sit quietly by them um, just to bring peace into their environment to yeah, make it, it as it, peaceful it, and 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 gentle a, a surrounding for them as possible, particularly in a hospital, to bring peace into that hospital room. Yeah, it, it is. You can change the entire atmosphere by just being quiet and and. It, in many ways, it takes away the noises that are out there. I, I noticed that in the hospice um, wing that, I, that my mom was in and Patrick was in, um, they didn't have any of the machines, so there were no beeps or drips or anything like that. It was just peaceful and quiet and calm. And it was yeah. it was kind of like, oh, this isn't bad, you know. <laughs> um, Not bad at all. Not no, bad this at isn't all. bad. And, and, and again, you know, this business about being peaceful and all, and also being around hospice is so good for the family because um, with so many people still under the influence of the death taboo, not knowing Uh how to behave, being scared. I mean, the death taboo teaches us to be afraid of death. And when you get around like in a hospice wing of a hospital where they all understand death and then they deal with it in a, in a loving, kind, and professional way. There's, there's not, it's not a panic thing. It's just we're all taking care of We're giving yeah. them a nice send-off. We accept. And that's the other thing. Um, for people who are scared about uh, somebody's dying, um, think about acceptance. Um, in my spiritual tradition, we call acceptance the first law of spirit. And what uh-huh. that means is um, it's, acceptance isn't saying, I like this, um, I approve of this. It's not that at all. It's saying, oh, this is what's happening. I, I'm not fighting against this. 
I am accepting that this is what's happening. And when you accept that somebody is dying, you can enter into being of service to them. But when you're fighting against it and trying to resist it or trying to resist your upset, then uh-huh. you're fighting, you're putting negative energy there. If you enter into it and accept and breathe into the truth, this person is dying. And, you know, is there something I want to say? You know, do I want to, do, you know, for example, with my mother, there were so many things I wanted to say to her to thank her for how, she mothered me and to remind her of, of memories that were so important to me and, and all the ways that she made my life better, you know. And yeah. it's hard to do when you're resisting that the, the reality. But when you accept it, then you can participate with love and kindness. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I, I think in looking at the fact that this is inevitable that that we are <clears throat> in my opinion our spirit our spirit is immortal but our physical body is not and i think you know you have you have many things that that you have in your book and exercises where people can sort of get their life in order by by doing different you know exercises and things like that and, and one of the things that you you have in your book which I thought is fabulous and, and I've done something similar is your your um, your legend what do you call it your legend um, exercise yeah and and it, it's it's and you know I mentioned to you that that all the questions that you they you have there are are questions that people write the answers to, and they they kind of get a a better understanding of their life and what has meaning and what's going on. I I did something very similar called StoryWorth, and found it um, enlightening and frightening, and and in some ways um, a catharsis to to remind me of of something in my life. So um, it's it's important to um to do things like that to it's it's kind of like a life review when you don't need it right and and the other thing is uh, um and for those who don't know what you're talking about how about if you explain story worth for a minute oh okay story worth is a is a, a it's a company it's online uh, storyworth.com and you sign up and they will send you a question about your life once a week and you write your answer to that question and you send it back to them and after a year um, they will publish your answers the questions and then your answers in a hardcover book you can put pictures in it You and some of the questions are are thought-provoking and crazy, and, and some of them, they have thousands of questions, so if you don't really like a question, um, you can choose another. I started with that, and then I realized if I didn't like the question, there had to be something profound connected to it, so I made myself answer the questions, and I always found out something interesting. Um, right. It's, it's everything from the mundane to the magical to the unbelievable that they ask you, you know, fondest memories of your grandmother, um, your, uh, gosh, 
my favorite toy as a child. One of the questions was, um, what was my favorite television program when I was a child? It horrified me, but when I was a child, they didn't have TV. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, when I was small, I mean, we did get the first TV. It was it was The screen was probably smaller than a tablet, and there was a test pattern always there, and when a show would come on, the show would come on, and then the show would go off. And I, you know, went back and kind of tried to find what were the shows that I really did watch when I was very, very young and and the fact that they didn't start doing 24-7 until the 80s, which I didn't know. So so the questions, you know, trigger stuff in you that um, or send you back to investigate something or remind you of something that you've forgotten. It's a it's an amazing exercise. Um, one of them was, has a piece of music ever touched you emotionally or spiritually? And, you know, it had, and the story of that was amazing. So, And then silly ones like, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? So it's, it's a wonderful way of getting to know yourself. And um, I, I, my daughter-in-law gave it to me for Mother's Day one year. I cursed her, and I thanked her, and... Um, then I cursed her again, and you know, I mean, I basically I've told her what a wonderful experience it was, and I'm thinking seriously of doing it again because it was it was an awakening on many different levels for me. And, right. And uh, I I think it's important that in many ways we do a life review um, every I think every ten years, so that so that we can see how much deeper we've gotten into the understanding of the worth and the value of love and compassion and life. Mm-hmm. And um, and that relates to the way I approach a similar thing in the book, which is what I call a family legacy journal. And mm-hmm. um, what I mean by that is, you know, when you think about this, uh, all the interest that people have in genealogy, and, you know, having your family tree and you know, you know, who was related to whom and what children they had and blah, blah, blah. That's all very interesting. But wouldn't it be amazing to have these books like your StoryWorth book about all those people that would put meat on the bones of the name of a person and so that you would get to know who was that person? Okay, uh-huh. what did they care about? What was, what was their personality like? And um, it's really a way to breathe life into the genealogy of a family. And the reason why, one of the reasons why it is so important is that there was research done in the 1990s by some clinical psychologists who discovered that uh, they created this, um, uh, a measurement called the Do You Know? And it was a list of 10 questions that they asked children to find out whether, what degree of knowledge children had about their family. And what they discovered is it wasn't important the, the facts of the, of the family, that they, but more that the children knew um, who they were connected to and had a sense of connection into their family. Uh-huh. It was a list of like 20 questions. And they correlated the results with a whole battery of psychological tests that indicated that, uh, that more... Uh, you know, that the more that children knew about their family history, they found out three things. The more that a child knew, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successfully they believed that their family functioned. 
And in all the research that's been done about children and their well-being, this particular measurement has proven to be the best measurement of a child's well-being. And I think that's wow. fascinating. Absolutely. You talk, you talk also about a family legacy book, which I thought was fabulous. That, that's a yeah. great idea. Yeah, do it together. Well, you know, yeah. Make a family project that you, that you all contribute to letting, the fam, letting other people know who you are from within yourself, not from somebody outside of you talking about you, but what's it like being you? That's such a great question. Um, I also oh, want to go gotcha. back to yeah. I want to go back to you mentioning that um, one of my very favorite things about this book is the, the exercises. Um, oh, and yeah. people who are familiar with my writing know that one of the things that I do is I want to bring again. It's about breathing life into it. I don't want you to just read read this book. It's not a book just about information. It's a book that says to you, what about you? What is your relationship like? How do you feel about death? What's it like for you? What experiences have you had around death and dying? So it asks you to engage with a personal inquiry so that we can break down the walls of any fear that you have around death and dying. So the exercises are there to support you in freeing yourself of anything that stands in your way of feeling at peace around about death. And um, that was, that's a really important feature of the book. Oh, absolutely. The, the exercises were phenomenal. And Thanks. you also provide an amazing list of uh, preparations to, to, you know, different forms that need to be filled out and the advanced the advanced um medical um things is one of advanced them but health. Yeah. yeah but and and you all of all of the medical forms you list them and and you list mm-hmm. the other things that that need to be filled out i mean it's a long list but you but, know anybody yeah. fills that out yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, I, I kind of address the full scope of what could be done. In terms of the healthcare uh-huh. planning, it's pretty straightforward. It's when you get into the um, a will, you know, deal, dealing with um, your money and your, and your personal belongings. And it's a very interesting thing. A lot of people say, oh, I don't need a will. You'd be amazed ah. at people who are filthy rich and don't have wills. That shocks me. Because, and that's oh, yeah. the denial death right there. That is the denial of death. Um, Because there are state laws that are going to regulate what happens to your stuff. Again, wouldn't you like to have a say in the matter? And and wouldn't you like to alleviate the burden from your loved ones of figuring out what to do with your stuff, what mattered to you, you know, what did you want done? Um, But one of the things I want to say about that is a lot of people go to lawyers quicker than they they should. If you if you part of what I, the reason I included the list of the kinds of information that you'll need to um, to gather together is yeah. so that people will gather that information before they go to an attorney who is going to have the ticker running. You know, the clock will be running at a very high rate of dollars. You know, yeah. save yourself yeah. a lot of money. 
and organized information about what you have, where is it located, what's its value. You know, if you kind of knock that off a little bit each year, you're going to have uh-huh. going to be so ahead of the game. And well, again, it, it's part. Let me just say this: it's part of the. Uh, it's part of being of fighting against the death taboo because it is the death taboo that stops us from doing these things. It's our fear and our trying to pretend like the see no hear no speak no evil little monkeys trying to pretend uh-huh. death doesn't exist. Stop. And instead of pretending it doesn't exist, demonstrate your courage and your loving heart by putting your ducks in a row before you go. And the 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 thing that impressed me and you've got a story that goes with this um, is that you know having your your medical files and your healthcare proxy and your your other things that, that and your blood type and all that kind of stuff in a file or somewhere where where um, somebody can grab it and have all the information they need and one of the things you said was a dental record or a, a, a an address for have, a dentist. This is one of the things, and this, you know, this is, you know, we we like to think about, you know, if you have to think about death, we like to think about it being a graceful process. It is not always so. And there are times when there are catastrophes and that bodies need, if you think about about 9-11 and bodies needed to be identified, one of the primary ways to identify bodies is through dental records. And so make sure that you, where you, when you, that you have a list of important contact, people to contact, have your dentist in the list. Isn't that, I mean, it's crazy, but that's one of the things that will save a lot of heartache. Well, yeah, and, you know, if, if, you don't, if they don't have a way of identifying you if you aren't all there, um, you know, your family can be held in limbo for a great that's length right. of time and and right. you know that that's that's horrifying for those that are left on this side you know you you probably won't care but but those people who are wondering if you're alive or dead or or you know that um it it's important to to have a way of identifying you i don't know can you put your dna on file or something like that that they could get from a tooth or is that not that, that. not that's probably that's probably possible, and what a great idea! What a great idea! I mean, it's you know, there are so many things that we. I mean, another one is you know now now there are things about about what what about your life online? You know, we all yeah. have accounts online, we have passwords and all of that. I mean, I have I have a list of eight pages of accounts and passwords and usernames and stuff like that. Um, oh, gee. You know, as a, writer, as a writer, I mean, the files on my computer, you need a map to know where things are. You know, you exactly. have to leave guidance and information for people about where your life is, you know. Uh-huh. No, Both that's online and yeah. off. I mean, I, I frankly mess up my passwords all the time. So, you know, but but, but it's a it's it, you know I hit forgot password more often than I don't than I don't. It's it's not that the things aren't written down; they're written down all over the place. Sometimes though, you just you get 
you, you get desperate and you change it. But that is that is really important. My, my late husband had it. He was an author as well, and so he had several pages of you know the different um, publishers and people that he worked with and the, the names of the accounts and the numbers and the this is and then that's. And it it helped me tremendously when he did pass away to be able to you know, contact the people and make arrangements to have things shifted around and changed. Um, had he not had that, I, I think I probably would have, um, well, I would have muscled through, but it wouldn't have been a quite as easy a process. Yeah. But, you know, also, um, you know, this idea of I don't need a will because I don't have anything, um, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have, because you have to understand that the value of things is not only monetary, it's also emotional. And, um, you know, you might have a flower vase that your daughter gave you as a wedding present or something, and it meant a lot to you, and it would mean a lot to her to have it back. I mean, who knows? Who knows what is meaningful to whom? One of the things that I've gotten to do, I mean, I'm in my 70s now, and I I have several dear friends, and I will say to them, would you do me a favor? Is there anything in, that I have that you wish you had? You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, is, are there any? I have like I have some a little bit of artwork here and there, and I I said because if there is, I want to put your name on it for when if if you outlast me. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's just. How can I, you know, it's so much of this is about expressing your love and caring for another human being. You know, it's not about the stuff. It's about if this matters to you, I want you to have it. It's like to this day, I have my mother's desk, and there is a little post-it on the back of the desk in my mother's handwriting that says, this desk belongs to my daughter, Judith Johnson. Oh, wow. And just having her little handwriting on that little note, I mean, I'll never take that off. Yeah, I I had a a post-it that my mother left on the refrigerator shortly before she passed away, and she said, remind Barb to turn off the outside faucets. (laughs) And, um, And I did not. And two days after she died, um, you know, the family... It was a small family that we were. Was all, we're all at the house, and um, water pipes burst because I hadn't yeah. turned them off. And and my sister was standing in the garage, not and with with her husband and my son and my daughter in law, and they they you know didn't want to wake me up because I was exhausted. And my sister is standing there crying. The house is crying because mom's died. And I said the house yeah. is crying because I didn't turn off the faucets and I. Showed my son where the where the thing was to turn off the the water so we could get some sleep. But I have I to this day I have that posted. I yeah. just uh, it was one of the last things she wrote and don't have outside water here anymore. But um, but uh, it's kind of fun to see her handwriting. I the other thing that I did because I love preserving her handwriting. Um, I took her cookbook and I scanned it all into the computer so that a lot of my recipes are are in her handwriting. Which, oh, sweet. Which, it, it really is cool. So yeah. uh, I, I think 
you know, things like that, um, it, it's, you kind of hope, sometimes there's hope that, you know, this will mean as much to somebody else as it means to me. And I have found that, that with um, some of the stuff that I have, that I have friends that, that you know, are more appreciative of some of the very, very old stuff. And, and I've given them things. You know, I'd rather give with warm hands than with cold. And and I think it's it's uh, it's something that I think people should, if they if they are so inclined, you know, do that. And I don't mean to to devast, you know to to take everything away that means something to you at all. But every now and then there's something that doesn't mean as much to you that it would mean to somebody else. And so I I give because then yeah. I don't have to dust it. <laughs> right. I want to go back to the um, the healthcare proxy for a moment, just to sure. mention a few things that um, could be helpful to somebody. First of all, what a healthcare proxy is is it's both a legal document and it's the title of a person. A healthcare proxy is the person who you designate to make decisions on your behalf about your medical care, if and when you are unable to make the decisions for yourself. Now, Uh this may occur at the end of life in the loss of consciousness, or it may occur because you're under anesthesia for a minor surgery and something happens. So it isn't just something that is important for end of life. It is important, as I said, this is the kind of thing that if you're 18 years or older, you want to designate who do you trust, who do you know would would follow your wishes. Because, for example... Let's say you're 18 years old and you are of a very different sensibility than your parents are. You might not want your parents to make decisions because they might not make the same ones you would. Uh All right? But you have the legal right to designate somebody else. And so you have, take advantage of the authority that you have to make the choices about your care and whose hands to put those, that, that in. Okay? Um, some people want, medically speaking, some people say, do everything. Hook me up to every machine. Do everything you can to prolong my life. And and if that's what somebody wishes, then you need to have somebody advocating for you who will honor that, okay? Uh Conversely, I, for example, am somebody who says, I would like to die as natural a death as possible. I do not want medical interventions that are done that are not likely to in, increase the quality or quantity of my life. Okay? Uh-huh. And I'll give an example. Let's say you're 94 years old and um, they they need to resuscitate you. Okay? Uh-huh. Um when you go to resuscitate a 94-year-old person, you will probably break their ribs in the process. Broken ribs are painful, okay? When somebody is that old, even if they are resuscitated, they are not likely to maintain the resuscitation and they probably will subsequently die anyway. So are you doing them a favor or not? So. What a healthcare proxy gives you the opportunity to do is say, you know, if I'm 
if I'm in good health and it looks like resuscitating me is going to restore my health, then yes. Or similarly with the question that I had to address with my mother about a feeding tube, um, basically the doctors were saying what we would suggest if you are so inclined is put a feeding tube in, give her four days, and if it doesn't, if she doesn't seem to bounce back, we'll take it out and let her go. Uh-huh. So there are decisions like that to be made. There's a tremendous amount of education available. I've got it all spelled out in my book, or you can look online about the kinds of decisions that need to be made. Think it out through. You can always change your mind. An updated healthcare proxy always um, out cancels out any previous ones. Make sure that you communicate with the person who you are appointing and that you are you're appointing somebody who will carry out your wishes. You also want to make sure that the document is available to your doctors. It's in your you want to have it in your medical files. Okay? So it's not just have the document. Somebody needs to know that they are appointed. They agree to do the do that for you. They understand your wishes and people know where the piece of paper is. All very important. Absolutely. Um, I just noticed our time is getting short. Um, went fast, didn't it? Uh, yeah. I think uh, there was one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, especially is, you know, do you have any upcoming events that you want to let people know about so that we can send them your way? Oh, thank you. I, I don't right now, but I do have um, one thing that I want people to know about is I have a workshop that I that I offer online. It's a 90-minute workshop. If you have an organization or a group of people who would like that, um, contact me through my website, and I'd be happy to coordinate presenting that to your group. Um, it gives a tremendous amount of education on these matters. And people have and fun think, in it. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> they do. I also, you want... I, you know, this is not your only book. You want to give them the other books that you've got out there as well? Oh, well, yeah. My first two books are about the wedding ceremony. The first is called The Wedding Ceremony Planner, The Essential Guide to the Most Important Part of Your Wedding Day. And it is all about how to design a wedding ceremony that really speaks to your particular values and beliefs. So it's when you are designing your own wedding ceremony, it takes you by the hand and makes it easy for you. And, you know, people don't realize that um, even, a simp- even a ceremony that takes 15 minutes has hundreds and hundreds of decisions in it to make mm-hmm. it a very simple, smooth-running ceremony. Um, so that is the first book. The second one is called How to Write Meaningful Wedding Vows, and that's, it's a workbook. A lot of people want to write their own vows, but they're afraid. And also people don't understand about the different kinds of wedding vows and the pros and cons of using the different kinds. So, for example, some people say, well, I'm going to be nervous, so can't we just do repeat after me? What happens, for example, okay, if I say, you know, I, Tom, take you, Emily, and then Tom says, I, Tom, take you, Emily, typically that absolutely the energy of them speaking to each other and the focus becomes repeating the right correct words and Tom will look at me instead of Emily <laughs> because he'll <laughs> focus on the 
trying to get the words right rather than telling his beautiful wife-to-be that he's making certain promises to her. So there's a lot of tricks of the trade that are in there. Um, and then, you know, this book, Making Peace with Death and Dying, has just come out. And then a year from this coming fall will be my next book, which is Being You, a User's Manual. And it is all about human consciousness and how we can elevate the level of consciousness from which we live our lives so that we lead richer lives, are kinder people, and more loving to one another. Well, hopefully I can grab you back for that one, too. That sounds fascinating. (laughs) I'm I'm in the midst of writing it right now. Oh, gosh. That's really exciting. I, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us. I, I just so appreciate your book and your stories and and your um, the, the exercises you have in the book, which are, are just fabulous. And if people go through them, they get to know a lot more about themselves and, and they learn about a process that is natural and happy and and in many ways um i mean there is a joy connected to it because this is the completion yeah. of something so so yeah. it's a it's while it while it's sad to let someone move on um it's a joyful celebration of the fact that they have finished something very important in their life right so and I, if I, could I, make- I i yeah, go ahead Oh, I just wanted to say if I could mention one more thing is I also offer mentoring services to people who are facing end-of-life challenges, whether it's caregivers, the dying person, family dynamics, anything around the issue of of end-of-life. I work with individuals and family groups um, to help make the process easier for them. So, again, people can reach me through my website, judithjohnson.com. Okay, and I bet you're going to get a lot of calls. Um, Thank you again so much. This has been such a pleasure, and I will keep you on my calendar so I can make sure I give you a call in about a year's time about the next book. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. And I I want to thank everybody for listening. This will be up on YouTube shortly. And... um, Thank you to Judith again for an amazing book that's full of joy and love and compassion. And it's a fascinating book to read. And uh, since all of us have the same, you know, ultimate ending, it might be a good idea to uh, educate yourself slightly and, and take some notes from it. Thanks again, everybody. Good night.